This is Steve Adubato here with my colleague, my co-host, my boss, Mary Gamba. (laughs) I like that new title. I'm going to add it. Yeah, it's not new. You've known that for 20 years. So Mary Gamba with me in the studio with our colleague, Brian Brodeur, coming to you from East Main Media Studios. We're talking leadership, nothing but leadership and connected and related topics. This is the Leadership Hour. The first half is called Lessons in Leadership, named after a wonderful book of the same name that an incredible author wrote. What was that author's name, Uh, Steve? Let's leave that alone. And the second half of this Leadership Hour, we've got State of Affairs, which is a program we do every week out of PBS Studio, NJTV. It's the PBS station in New Jersey. We do it out of that studio, talking to leaders of all stripes in New Jersey about a whole range of issues. And one of the things I love about the Leadership Hour and this particular part of it, Lessons in Leadership, is we get to talk to some of the most interesting, compelling, thoughtful leaders who've had such diverse experiences, interesting backgrounds. And today is no exception. We kick off the show talking to our friend and colleague, Barb Short, who is Chief Diversity Officer and President of the PSEG Foundation. Barb, good to talk to you, my friend. Hi, Steve. Thank you. I really love your work and that you do this series. And I'm just humbled to be with you on this topic, especially. We appreciate that. And we also want to disclose that PSEG, the foundation and the corporation, have been incredibly supportive of our work in public broadcasting. They're major supporters of NJTV News and major supporters of the work that we do at the Caucus Educational Corporation. Barb, I want to jump into a topic, and I'm going to tell you where this came from actually asking you to do the show. We had a meeting with you a few months back in your conference room, and we got into a really interesting discussion about diversity. And the term diversity gets thrown out. People are like, oh, PC stuff? No, not PC stuff. The connection between true, genuine diversity in the workplace and great leadership, what is it? The connection that's so very important, I think, and that we all are really focused on is it's about purpose. It's about building a purpose-driven company and building a purpose-driven workforce. So, you know, for us, when we talk about diversity, um, yes, we need to understand our differences, but I think it's really about having humility and connecting with each other and finding that shared purpose that we all have when we come to work today, when it comes to meeting the companies obligations and accountabilities in the world and in our state, but it's also about ensuring that we are tapping into each individual's personal purpose when they come to work every day and making sure that we're unleashing that when they're doing their job. So stay on that. You used an interesting term. You said humility. Make the connection between humility and leadership. Sure. And diversity, I think, you know, so when it comes to leadership and diversity and purpose-driven business, it's really all about how we show up. And if we're showing up with humility and empathy and a sense of curiosity, where we're really looking to understand where we are as a company and where we are as peers, and then really trying to find the connections in terms of where we can go together. I think that's the most important part. It's coming to that understanding that we will have difference. There will be tensions. It's how we approach having those tensions that will help us do better for each individual and for the business as well. Well said. This is Lessons in Leadership. We're talking to our colleague and friend Barb Short from PSEG. Barb, let me try this. Mary and I are preparing against Mary's wishes for me to write another book on leadership. 
And one of the things we wanted to do is take these amazing interviews that we've been doing over a decade with all kinds of leaders and incorporate them into this new book and also offer our perspectives. And one of the things that Mary did in the research for this book that she's not anxious to write with me is- I am so thrilled, Steve. (laughs) Is what we looked at is what are the most interesting questions you can ask leaders? I often ask them, what's your greatest leadership lesson? What was the greatest leadership challenge? But I'm going to ask you something because as we were doing this research, a question came up that struck me that I want to ask you. How would you describe how your leadership, dare I use the term philosophy, was developed? Where did it come from, A, and B, did it come to a significant degree from your family of origin? I would say for me, there are probably three components. So there is for me the courage basically having that sense of humility and the work ethic. And that definitely comes from my family. My mom quit high school when she was 16. She was one of 10 in an Irish Catholic family. My dad, he was a student at St. Peter's and St. Benedict's and went into the Marines after that. Yeah. and, And had a small business. His father was a union leader in Newark. My grandmother, his mother, was a small business owner. So it was really watching that humility and that, that work ethic that they all had. You were, excuse me, Barb, sorry for interrupting, you were around all sure. of this as a kid? You saw all of this? Yeah. Well, wow. my dad, I'm hearing stories from my dad about my grandfather that, that are incredible. And my mom was one of 10. And we were just a humble family, humble Irish Catholic family. And my aunts and uncles, you know, they sliced meat at the deli and they worked in the manufacturing plant. My, one of my uncles was a bus driver and it was really watching them love life and family and what they were doing while they were doing their jobs with tremendous work ethic and humility. And I'm a first generation college graduate. So also watching my parents work so hard to ensure that their daughters had a college education was also something that inspires me and that I feel tremendous gratitude for all of the time. To what degree, and this is really loaded, given that fascinating background you just described, and I'm sure it's a thumbnail sketch of it, to what degree do you think it impacts your work as a leader interacting with other people from diverse backgrounds? Uh, Many of those folks sometimes coming from other very humble beginnings. To what degree do you feel empathy toward those folks? I think it's a huge, has a huge impact. I think growing up watching my dad run his business in Newark, I'm reflecting back on, you know, now, what, 54 years old. So, you know, child of the 70s. And yeah, really just watching my family make a living and how they made that living with humility and with connection and faith and really just, I I think it's really the humility. And I think this sense of, I'll have to bring the Irish Catholic background into it, kind of the the humility and the joy. So there was just so much joy at the same time. They would work very hard and then they'd sit around the living room and take turns singing Irish songs. Really? (laughs) That's what you saw? Wow. I I wish, Uh, you're making me wish. And they danced? Did you sing and dance, Steve? I, I, well, let me tell you something. As I'm listening to you, Barb, I'm wishing I grew up in your family. Well, let me try this one because I only have Barb for a limited amount of time. This is Barb Short, who is a chief diversity officer, also president of PSCG Foundation. So real quick on this. Humility, 
and confidence. Now, what I mean by that is there's a whole bunch of folks who are convinced that to be a great leader, you have to have and show and demonstrate confidence, never let them see you sweat, never admit a mistake. And you're talking about humility. <laughs> I'm like, how do they go hand in hand? Can you be confident as a leader, but still have genuine humility? Oh, wow. I think they go hand in hand, right? So, so first of all, you have to be able to deliver. And as women, we learned this growing up in the workforce. We had to, if we were going to earn any position of, of respect, we definitely had to learn how to deliver. And I think for women, we learned how to deliver times X, you know. So I think that's the first thing is coming from a position of knowing that you need to know your stuff and have the work ethic and ability to deliver it well. But I think when it comes to how you're describing how we behave as leaders, I think the greatest demonstration of confidence comes from showing that it's okay if we just sit there and listen. It's okay if we take the, the feedback and it's okay to say, you are absolutely right about that. And I need to learn how to do that better. I, it, I think one of my greatest, oh, sorry, go ahead. Is it, I'm sorry for interrupting. Is it okay to say as a really strong leader, I screwed up? It's on oh me. My it's on me. I yes. did, this is all yes. on me. My bad. <laughs> well, I do it all the time. So <laughs> yeah, same here. I'm in. I'm, I'm in the my bad club. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I and I think that I've learned the most from the people that have worked for me. The one example that I'll give, just as a mother, is I have two daughters. One is 17, and one is 19. And when they were about five and seven. And I was passionately correcting them on something, probably not getting ready for bed or something like that. And they just stopped and looked at me and they said, Mommy, you need a do-over. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, How did you respond? I almost cried. I was so proud of them. I, you know, I was just like, you are right. I'm going to walk out of this room and I'm going to come back in and I'm going to tell you what I need to tell you in a different way. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. wow. What is this? It says a lot about your daughters. It also says a lot about you. Well, I think that was, it was such a moving moment because I wanted to raise strong women and I got them a lot earlier than I expected, but I got them. <laughs> Mary, quick follow-up. that's the same thing with yeah. your team. Well, it's funny. Barb, you had actually brought up the— By the way, you're listening to Mary Gamba, Steve Arbato, Brian Brodeur, together with our friend and colleague Barb Short from PSEG. Go ahead, Mary. Absolutely. Steve and I always talk about women in leadership positions, and do men and women lead differently. And I wanted to get your perspective on that. Do you feel as a woman in leadership that you need to, and then as a result, do lead differently than your male counterparts? Huh, that's so interesting. There's a lot that's written about that. There's a lot that's said about that. I think there's a lot that said that women are very strong connectors and engagement oriented and that there's great strengths in that. I can say I've seen men do that really well too. So I think that people lead differently. I mean, if women need to lead in a different way, I think we might have a little more empathy in terms of what it may take sometimes or the challenges that someone is potentially dealing with. I personally, the women that I have considered role models have been extremely generous and humble 
connectors. So they see the world as an ecosystem that they are operating within and that they want to help others operate within really effectively. And that the way I see my work, as I've learned this from other women, is that the best thing that I can do is just help others connect to gold. You know, finding the gold in them and then helping them connect to the gold that's out there. Hey, Barbara, is that paying it forward? I guess it is, yeah. I guess that's a great way of saying it is that maybe women realize that they need to to pay it forward. I'm not saying men don't, but I think that may be inherent in women who've learned how to succeed in business. You know, we usually practice what we preach, but we need to disclose that we told Barb Short, and when we booked this, Mary said, yeah, it'll be about six to eight minutes. So far, we're going on 15 or 16 minutes. And so- really? Yeah. (laughs) And, And it's unedited, Barb. The whole thing is there. So first, we want to apologize and own the fact that we stole that much time from you. But way more importantly, you've given us an awful lot to think about. Our audience, I'm sure, is is fascinated by this. And, and you can listen to this program as you listen to it right now on the radio on AM 970 every Sunday at 2 p.m., but also the podcast that we send out to all kinds of folks. And I'm sure the folks at PSE&G will be sending it out as well. Barb, I cannot thank you. We cannot thank you enough for joining us on Lessons in Leadership on the Leadership Hour. And we appreciate your friendship, your collegiality, and and your insight. And thank you so much. Well, we consider your work so very important, and we're grateful for you. So thanks for having me. An honor. Have a great day, Barb. That was Barb. Wow. Isn't Isn't it interesting? We're in a meeting with Barb. We'll go to break in a second. And we're talking about all kinds of programming because they're a big funder of public broadcasting and what we do. But as we were sitting there, you and I were both thinking, wow, mm-hmm. you know how you're doing one thing? You're talking about programming and, and energy policy and educating people about energy issues. And you and I are thinking at the same time, boy, would she be a great guest on the Leadership Hour? Oh, yeah. I mean, we're sitting around a board table and we were there with an agenda. They had an agenda in terms of just partnering, working together. And as I was listening to her speak that day, I just remember hearing the passion behind what she was saying. It wasn't just going through the motions. And she truly believed in the mission of diversity, of inclusion, and of really just making the PSCG Foundation the best that it can be and to give back to others. And she really just shared a lot of that today. Real quick point before we go to the break. Mary mentioned something that sticks in my mind a lot. We talk about this a fair amount, but we need to mention this uh, a little bit more. Steve Adubato, Mary Gamba, my co-host Brian Brodeur, and this coming to you from the studios of East Main Media. This is uh, the Leadership Hour. So one of the things about Barb, and Mary and I are big into this, it wasn't just what Barb said, Barb Short. It's how she said it. Translation. Great leaders have to bring energy enthusiasm, passion, a dynamic presence, even when they feel like crap. I'm not saying Barb felt like crap. All I'm saying is that stood out. Mm -hmm. And to me, when I see it, it's exciting. I want to be a part of it. You want to try to bring it yourself, but when you don't see it, it's painful. Yeah, we have been in meetings where I wish we could just you know, do that like white envelope <laughs> across the table. And, and you and I both realize who those people are in a meeting. And I know that you're seeing what I'm seeing. I'm sorry, Mary and I have been in conference calls. And I will admit, we have texted each other oh, yeah. saying things like, 
Are you still awake? Yeah, a whole bunch of Zs, you know, and it, that doesn't happen often. Usually, no, no. luckily, on a call, most people are engaged because it's a lot harder to hide and be boring. But what on a about call. when they're going through the motions? But when they're going through the motions, that's when we do the little Z emojis, and it works really well. Do they know it? I think it's half and half. I think that 50% of the people know it and just don't care. We were at a meeting a good couple of weeks ago, and there was one particular person in that room that I swear could not have been more disengaged, not involved in the conversation. We'll talk offline of what meeting this was. And I I was just shaking my head. I'm like, how could you be, your boss is in the room, how could you be so disengaged, so, I don't know if the word is apathetic. Not present. Not present. And it was just fascinating to me. And I always just shake my head and wonder how people get into certain roles. But then on the flip side, you're in that same meeting and you have somebody who's just lighting up the room and you're leaning in because you want to hear what they're going to say next. And and you remember those moments. And the other ones, unfortunately, just are the outliers. There's a real connection between leadership and energy, energy right, Brian? Absolutely. It I'm sorry, drives. did I wake you up? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh sorry. Uh, it's Poor in- Brian. He never knows when you're going to call on him. <laughs> I'm ready. I got the mic. He's not in a classroom. <laughs> call on him. Right. Oh, my God. He, the teacher called on me. That's not Brian. Battle of 1812. What? <laughs> uh, well, it drives engagement, right? So, I mean, when you have an energized leader, it will engage the team, and it, and it will drive things with momentum and forward. That being said, we're going to take a break because we have some energy that we have to get up and loose. Can we stand during the break? You can stand whenever you want, Steve. I'll do some of my stretching. We'll be back in just a moment on Lessons in Leadership. This is Steve Adubato, Mary Gamba. We'll be right back. This is Mary Gamba. If you want more leadership tips and tools, log on to stand-deliver.com. That's stand-deliver.com. This edition of the Steve Adubato Leadership Hour has been made possible by New Jersey Resources. Welcome back to the Leadership Hour. This is Lessons in Leadership. I'm Steve Adubato with my colleague, Mary Gamba. It was a pleasure listening to Barb Short from PSEG. All right. <clears throat> this is something we've been preparing for for a while. I said we agreed that we would look for the most fascinating leadership quotes that come from some... Well, recognized Mm -hmm. leaders. We don't agree with all these quotes, but they are fodder for a discussion. By the way, before we do that, can you plug all the folks who help make this program possible? I would love to. Well, first of all, I do want to let folks know on AM 970, if they're listening on the radio and they like what they hear, they Say could they actually... Say they want to find out about some past podcasts we exactly. did on Exactly. And we have a huge library. Brian, I think we're up to episode 65 now. Yeah, we're um, way in the 60s. We are way in the 60s. So um, they can go to Apple Podcast as well as Google Play and, of course, give us a great rating if you like what you hear. You can follow us on Facebook, Steve Adubato, PhD. That's A-D-U-B-A-T-O. As well as on Twitter, Steve Um, And as far as our wonderful, wonderful sponsors who support us, first and foremost, New Jersey Resources, who supports uh, the Leadership Hour and has done so from the very beginning, Um, as well as our other partners, RWJ Barnabas Health. We've got Gibbons Law Firm, uh, MD Advantage, New Jersey Resources, as we just talked about, Cone Resnick, um, Operating Engineers. How about uh, Valley Bank? Valley Bank. Yep. The list goes on and on. And speaking about rebranding, I think they just go by Valley now. So they went from Valley National Bank to Valley Bank, and now I think they just went with Valley. Who knew? So it's Valley. All great stuff. So just thank you to all of our great partners. Let's do this. All right, I'm gonna th- we'll throw some leadership quotes out there. And by the way, if you're listening to us right now and you would like to write to us, send us a what? 
I would say the email is probably the easiest way to get to us. At um, Steve Adubato at Gmail? Sure. Yes, that That's is your personal email. S-T-E-V-E-A-D-U-B-A-T-O at gmail.com. That would be great. So just send us an interesting leadership quote, one that you have been influenced by. These are some that we want to throw at you right now. Here we go. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, connection to the World War II. Americans were afraid. They were worried. There was uncertainty. We were about to go into war. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt said on the radio, because there was no TV at the time, the only thing to fear is fear itself. Yes, Mary Gamba? I, I First, I just have to applaud you for your deep radio voice there. You brought me back to the time of old school radio. That was really great. Yeah, in the 1940s, you were yeah. sitting there around the... Uh, Campfire and mm-hmm. campfire. Who was that? I meant the fireplace. <laughs> you were at a campfire and said, there was a radio. Camping? <laughs> I, I would want to see pictures of you camping, just for the record, if Not that actually happen. ever happened. Come on, let's deal with the only thing to fear is fear, fear itself. itself. Let's go ahead with that. I love that quote. And that works in business and life. If you let fear consume you, you're not going to be focused. You're better off just being focused, being strategic. We always talk about strategic agility. And being strategic and putting a plan together is a lot more productive than just, you know, doing a spiral thinking with fear. Let's stay on this a little bit. Um, I'm growing up as a kid, my father who I've talked about him before on the show, and I've written about him extensively in my book, Lessons in Leadership, that you can get from going on our website, stand-deliver.com. When my dad would sense that I was afraid of anything, he wasn't the kind of dad that said, oh, wow, my only son is afraid. I better take him in. I better make him feel better and tell him everything will be okay. This was my father. You afraid? Let me tell you something. Now I'm going to give you something to be afraid of. And he would press the issue and tell me weak people were afraid and it's the most horrible emotion there is because fear doesn't solve problems. Stop being, and I'm not going to use the language that he used. And I became so aware that fear was something that was not to be respected. And so you hid your fear, Mm -hmm. but you still felt your fear. Of course you did, yeah. And so what's so interesting is recently, uh, by the way, when you run an organization, you're a leader anywhere, there are challenges everywhere. So we were, we were told recently that there's a challenge that we're facing in our broadcast world, and Brian knows about it as well. And it has to do with distribution, our platforms, and where we're seeing, and, and a change in the marketplace, and we may potentially lose a significant platform. What does it all have to do with fear? As I read about it, and I realized something significant was happening in the marketplace, my first reaction was fear. My first reaction, I literally, I can't believe I'm saying this on the air, I was reading it, and my body started breaking into a sweat, a fear sweat, mm-hmm. not profusive sweating, but I was like, where'd that come from? And the adrenaline just kicked in. And I thought, okay, um, my father told me this isn't a good thing to be afraid. <laughs> um, and, and then I thought, okay, how long can I be like this? What do I need to do? And here's my point. I picked up the phone, I called Brian, I called our head of communications, Laura Van Bloom, I talked to Mary, talked to our colleagues, what are our options, what's really happening, how do we get our information, what kind of strategies can we pursue, what alternatives, point being, if you say stay stuck in the fear mode, Mm -hmm. the only thing to fear is fear itself, 
and you can't get out of it or don't get out of it, nothing will move forward. The faster you move to some action. Now, Mary, you've had to deal with some challenging situations in your own life in terms of family illness or whatever. Mm -hmm. How much could fear consume you to the point where you're immobilized? Oh, it could. Absolutely. Oh, it is. um, And again, you and I have always talked about that, and especially in this most recent example, as you brought up. And the first thing I always say to you is, all right, let's just get, first of all, I'm about getting the facts, right? Like it. And sometimes you can't get the, there are enough facts to be gotten because there's an unknown. Yes, exactly. Which makes you more fearful. It does. But on the flip side, I'm always in the mindset. And again, you brought up a health issue. And, you know, my mom has cancer. So when I first found out, it was terrifying. And I said, well, wait a second. We're not the only ones who are dealing with this. Let's do some research. How quickly did you that do did you did you do that, Mary Gamma? Immediately, I, Come I on. went from I did. It was and even to this day, it's all been. It, it's been about I want to be in the driver's seat. Not unrealistically, you can't control the outcome always of cancer, but what you can control is what information is already out there. I like to accumulate the information to do my research and then make the best decisions. And that was my recommendation for you in the situation that you just brought up was, okay, we may not have all the answers, but let's also not go totally the other end of the spectrum. And Sky is falling. Exactly. And that's when I always say, take a deep breath. Let's be strategic about what we're doing. Because the first immediate reaction is, I want to be in that driver's seat. I want to get everything in control. But sometimes if you press pause, even for a couple of hours, and really start to talk to people, like you said, you reached out to Brian and the team at East Main Media to see, all right, how can we get creative? And you talk to your team, you can put a plan together. And then you move away from fear. And then you get into really just what are we going to do? What do we have control of in this situation? And it's a much more productive outcome. The only thing to fear is fear itself. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Could you imagine? He's the president. He's got to make a decision. Are we going to enter World War II? Yeah. And there are millions of Americans. Talk about leadership moments for presidents. Mm -hmm. They're like, no, not our problem. Let's stay at, well, no, certain things happen that caused us to get involved. And he goes, yeah. By the way, Roosevelt may have been afraid as well. but I'm sure he was. If you're not, you're not human. Right. But Mm -hmm. for how long and how deep and does it paralyze you to the point where you can't lead? That is the question. Right. And you need to think clearly. If you let fear and you have that downward spiral thinking, uh, it could definitely consume you. Real quick point on this. Uh, Mary and I have had conversations. By the way, when you talk about leadership, I have a hard time differentiating between leadership and life, meaning I don't see the difference sometimes. Mm -hmm. There have been times I've talked to Mary about something that's going on in my personal life, and I'll be afraid of what the outcome could be. And to the point where you perseverate, you obsess over it, and you think this potential outcome is the outcome that's likely to happen. And then the way you act precipitates that outcome, not because that was going to be the outcome, but because you acted in a way that drove the outcome. And it was fear that you couldn't manage and control Mm -hmm. that caused you to act like an idiot. Make sense? Yeah. Self-fulfilled prophecy. And a lot of times, if you believe something, if you think it long enough, it will happen for better or for worse. And I'm a true believer in that. If you visualize yourself, I was listening to, I know we talk about Howard Stern a lot, but he was doing an interview with Ellen DeGeneres. Yes. And she was saying, because he asked her that question, did you always envision that you would be who you are today? And she said, absolutely. I envisioned that I was going to 
be a talk show host. In other words, that I was going to be able to have a platform where I could share my message and talk to people and make people laugh. And she said, if you believe it for long enough, it will happen no matter what it is. Of course, within reason, you can't believe that you're going to be on the moon. But if you believe that you want to be an author, if you believe that you want to be a principal of a school, then you will do those things to get there. If you are consumed by fear because, oh, I'm not good enough to do that, then that can also become a self-fulfilled prophecy. True, but also tell you something else. By the way, we're going through leadership quotes. This is Steve Adubato with Mary Gamba for Lessons in Leadership with our colleague Brian Brodeur coming to you from East May Media. You're listening to us on AM 970 or our podcast as well, which, by the way, we may, Brian, I don't know, talk about afraid, fear. We may be going a video down the road. We may shoot this show, uh, this podcast on video if we can pull it together so you can see how incredibly good we look. Um, that being said. I'm not afraid, by the way. See, Brian's not. I'm not afraid of that. See, Brian is a perfect May. example. He makes me feel confident because he's confident that this is going to work. Are you faking? Hold on a second. Oh, Brian no. Brodeur, the head of East May Media. Are you faking that, ah, come on, we can do this as opposed to, I'm not sure we can do it, but I need to say it that way. Nope. Nope. So wait a minute. Then you make it sound, stop. I was going to go to another quote, but you make it sound like you don't feel fear. I mean, fear drives my anxiety, and so I have to manage my anxiety. I have lots of anxiety about this, but one of the tools for managing that is confidence in my and my team's ability. And so I can confidently say, and I wouldn't say it if I wasn't confident, I can say, we're going to do it, we can do it, we should do it. And I'm excited. Isn't that so interesting? Even if you have some fear as a leader, you have to yeah. convince yourself, I may not have all the answers. I don't know exactly how it's going to work, but I believe. Yeah. I, I was going to talk about this other NFL football player that played for many, many years, um, and he was, quote, unquote, afraid to come out because he was gay. He was afraid to tell his family. He was afraid to tell his – it was on the Today Show uh, – We'll talk about him another time in detail, but I was struck by and so moved by this interview. What he was telling the interviewers at the Today Show, he played many years in the NFL. Huge guy, offensive lineman, about 6'6", 300 pounds. He said he didn't even like football, but he played football because it would deflect from the fact in his mind that he was gay and other people would think he was never gay. He couldn't be gay and be a football player in his mind. And he was so afraid that it paralyzed him from being his true self until he finally, through therapy, had the courage to overcome his fear, to acknowledge, yeah, I'm gay. And he realized that the vast majority of people around him, including his teammates and his family, took him in. His father had a tough time. He lost some friends. Some teammates did give him a hard time. But he says he can't even imagine the difference between his life today and what it was by being previously dominated by... Fear. Fear. I, it's just, that's what I mean when I say there's a, you got the name? I don't. I find a couple of candidates. No, don't worry. Yeah, it happens more than once. But that being said, it just strikes me that that one quote, mm -hmm. that one quote, the only thing of fear is fear itself from Franklin Roosevelt. We're also going to be doing some Vince Lombardi quotes in our next episode of the Leadership Hour. Winning isn't everything. It's the only thing from Vince Lombardi, former Head coach of the Green Bay Packers, the great Vince Lombardi. I'm not sure I actually believe that's true, that winning is the only thing. But I do know this. This is the end of Lessons in Leadership on the Leadership Hour. Steve Adubato from Mary Gamba and Brian Brodeur from East Main Media. Cannot thank you enough for checking us out on AM 970 or on our podcast. 
hey, listen, down the road, you may see our smiling, beautiful, lots of makeup, airbrush faces. I was going to say, uh, I ain't getting any younger. So a lot of makeup, a lot of airbrushing, and we'll be ready to go. Let me tell you something. With good lighting, I look good. See you next time, folks. Steve Adubato here. This is Mary Gamba. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with State of Affairs with Steve Adubato, where we look at the most pressing issues facing the state of New Jersey. This edition of the Steve Adubato Leadership Hour has been made possible by New Jersey Resources. Hi, I'm Joel Bloom, president of New Jersey Institute of Technology. At NGIT, we believe that not only our students, but all citizens need to be informed about the issues facing higher education. As New Jersey Science and Technology University, NGIT is proud to support the important programming produced by the Caucus Educational Corporation and their partners in public television. Funding for this edition of State of Affairs with Steve Adubato has been provided by RWJ Barnabas Health, NJIT, New Jersey Institute of Technology, PSENG, committed to providing safe, reliable energy now and in the future. The Northward Center, the Turrell Fund, supporting right from the start NJ, MD Advantage Insurance Company of New Jersey, and by Wells Fargo. Promotional support provided by New Jersey Globe and by New Jersey Monthly, the magazine of the Garden State, available at newsstands. Welcome to State of Affairs. I'm Steve Adubato. We're coming to you from the NJTV studio. Newark. that's the Agnes Varis NJTV studio. Pleased to be joined by our good friend Roger Leone, superintendent of the Newark Public Schools. Good to see you. Good morning. How tough is that job? It's the most incredible job that I've ever had in Newark schools. Challenging, though, because I know it's rewarding. We've talked about this before, but one of the biggest challenges you face today well, is just um, establishing expectations. Everyone wants everything done immediately, which is uh, understandably so. But uh, everything needs to actually occur at a particular time. So people have the right ideas. It's just necessarily organizing the system so that we address the needs uh, at the most appropriate time. Roger, how many students are we talking about? We have 37,000 students in Newark schools, an increase of about 800 from their previous year. Why, why, is, why the increase? Well, I think that uh, people are understanding that the schools in Newark are designed to address the needs of their students, regardless of how their students come to schools, that we are actually impacting them in a very profound way, and mm -hmm. people are finding that enrolling them in our Newark schools will accomplish whatever are the future dreams of those, their children. So let's do this. Uh, before we get into a range of specific issues about students' performance and other related issues, let me also share that we have a collaboration with the Newark Public Schools through a program, a leadership program we do called Stand and Deliver for Newark Public Youth, excuse me, Newark Youth and the public schools are involved as well as a group of nonprofits to uh, help those students reach their potential. That being said, hey, I talked to you right before we got on camera, renovating the schools themselves, huge issue. Oh, absolutely. Um, our oldest school, was built 10 years before Abraham Lincoln was president. And so, you know, not only addressing their needs, uh, but actually uh, the request that we actually have of building new buildings all throughout the city in every single ward is an issue that is pressing us today. Economics of that? Definitely. So, you know, we have bond issues that will Explain uh, it. That's borrowing. 
that's borrowing. Uh, Technically, right now, the, the school district, as it's moving from a state control operation to local control, still the school's development authority is the actual agency that uh, builds our schools. So as we're transitioning, we're transitioning in every aspect of it, and there's a lot of work that we will need to do and money that we will need to uh, save to actually build our schools. Superintendent, you have, in fact, brought in props. Yes. You have this. This is called NPS. NPS Clarity 2020. Look at is you a, holding up to the is camera. It's a one-year strategic plan. It is what? It is a one-year strategic plan. Lay out the keys to it. The key, there are 12 keys that are outlined in it. It's a, creating a new ecosystem in Newark that will redefine its schools and how we actually service children. A couple of the it, top priorities. Well, uh, definitely, obviously, student achievement across all of our schools is uh, one of the goals. It's uh, redefining what schools are. So it's beginning at conception to cradle and going beyond college and careers. It's really redefining our role in a structure that really has boxed us in in worrying about babies that are three years old and then their senior year in high school. We do not do anything prior to them arriving in school and what they do after they've graduated from high school. So it's redefining all of the aspects of the work from when the baby is uh, in that mommy's uh, tummy all the way until they've landed their well, first job. I understand that one of our initiatives that we're doing at the Caucus Educational Corporation, together with our partners in public television, is called Right From The Start NJ. They're about to put the uh, website up right now. Focusing on childcare and the needs of infants and toddlers. That's particularly relevant in a community like Newark, getting kids ready for kindergarten. Oh, absolutely. It, it actually starts a little bit before the, the baby is actually born. So when that baby is in the tummy, how to actually educate the mom and the dad and everyone who is worrying about that baby on how to worry about their own health, worry about the health of their child, and then prepare them in their months to their first year. Mm -hmm. There are certain actions that a parent needs to do to ready their baby, talking to the tummy, letting them know how proud they are going to be when they are actually born, and then when they are actually born, making sure that all of the medical needs uh, that that child actually has are being addressed. Being a parent is a very difficult thing, and part of what the school system is redefining itself as is a role on how to work mm. and help parents do a far better job. Marjorie, understand this. I want to get to the water situation in Newark and its relationship to the Newark Public Schools, where it's relevant and where it's not. But in terms of this report, is there another priority you want to mention other than student performance? Well, I do want to say that the important piece of NPS Clarity 2020 is to establish a foundation that assesses the last 23 years of state operation, as well Whoa, as the state control of the Newark Public right, Schools. Right. So the Newark Schools has been controlled, as people are probably aware, of for the last uh, 23 years. Last year was the move uh, in a transition to local control. Uh, we will actually have full local control on January of 2020. Part of what NPS Clarity 2020 does is it assesses what occurred in the past as well as provide insight on what we need to do by establishing a strong foundation for the next decade. So what will actually come in June of 2020 is a 10-year strategic plan that really will bring about the precepts with that are outlined control. in NPS with full local Real control. Real quick follow-up on that. This report also talks about supporting teachers. Back that up. Absolutely. So the teachers are absolutely critical. They are closest to the most significant heartbeat in our classrooms, that being the children. 
So the work that we do with the children, the development, the professional development that they are requiring, as well as building a pipeline. We want stronger teachers to stay in the classrooms, but we want those who can be leaders to not only do that, but to be provided unique opportunities. And they can only get that if they actually accrue their master's, get their doctorate. Mm -hmm. And not only are we providing tuition reimbursement, but we're providing incentives with a new contract to really uh, impress upon people to go beyond their initial years of schooling. By the way, we're, while we're talking to the superintendent, I want to clarify, later today on State of Affairs, we're going to be taking an interview with the Commissioner of Education in the state of New Jersey, Commissioner Repolette, and one of the issues he'll be talking about is the diversification of the teaching workforce. Real quick on the water situation. Yeah. We're also talking to Mayor Baraka today of Newark about the city's water situation, some call it a crisis. But the Newark Public Schools has had issues, they've had issues about water. Is it a separate issue, Roger? Uh, it is. Uh, in 2016, uh, the DEP... Um, Department of Environmental Protection in the yes, state. Uh, ...approved a, a remediation plan that has been in play ever since. At that point in time, the district uh, purchased in industry-grade filters that are actually installed in every one of our water fountains as well as uh, sinks where we are actually preparing uh, food for our uh, children. How do we know they're working? That, it, well, it actually gets monitored every month. Uh, across the whole entire school system. And if there are any problems with it, the interesting thing about this filter is that upon it not working, it shuts off the water. So we will know if it's not working because the water fountain or the faucet won't actually deliver any water to either the students or our staff members. It's been working. It's something that we obviously monitor very closely and that is of great concern to us. And as of right now, we're doing okay. Final question, Roger. Uh, for those who are outside the city of Newark or in urban communities throughout New Jersey and the other states we're seen in who, quote, expect less from urban children and students in public schools, you say? Oh, I, don't, I don't think that people expect less from well, they our think schools. they're capable of less. I think, I, I don't even know if that's actually Just true. Just assume that some think that. What I will challenge is this. If the rest of the state of New Jersey doesn't get it together, the city of Newark is going to prove that the, the folks that are lacking are the ones who don't live in the city of Newark. You see, what we're doing is establishing a new expectation for the children in our higher. city, much, much higher than perhaps it has ever been experienced before. And our students are going to achieve it, which is the underlying uh, premise of your question that perhaps people believe that they can't. Because when Newark gets it together, what are the rest of the cities in New Jersey going to say about how they're servicing their children? I think that we're at a point poised to compete with the finest school districts in New Jersey, and we're extremely excited about working with those superintendents to accomplish just that. Superintendent Leon has just uh, laid the gauntlet down. It's a challenge. Thank you, Superintendent, for joining us. We appreciate, we appreciate you. it. Appreciate you. This is State of Affairs. I'm Steve Adubato coming to you from NJTV Studios in Newark. We'll be right back right after this. To see more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato programs, visit us online at stateofaffairsnj.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD. And follow us on Twitter at Steve Adubato. We are pleased to be joined by Patrick Dunnigan, Chairman and Managing Director of Gibbons PC. Now, Gibbons is a law firm based where compared to our NJTV studio? Yeah, we're about a minute away. <laughs> Got over here. Long commute. Yes, One yes. Minute to uh, Patrick Dunnigan is with us. Uh, we've, in fact, done some leadership development at your firm, a lot of your um, lawyers that skew, let's say this, some of the younger lawyers, just jump right into this. How challenging yeah. is it to get lawyers, regardless of age, ready for the business of law today? 
extremely challenging. Because? Well, most lawyers go to law school because they are, enjoy the academic pursuits. Uh, developing business is a primary skill that every lawyer needs to have in today's marketplace. And it's something that they haven't done anything with in, in terms of training. So that's why we go to people like you to help us out. Well, Patrick's talking about, we actually talk to folks a lot about this whole question of developing business. For you, how much of that is a natural thing in personality without being overly philosophical versus something you can train for? Yeah. Um, you learn as you get older that uh, developing business is all about relationship building, and that's something that you start in kindergarten. So everything you need to know, you learn in kindergarten. Uh, yeah, we just actually talked to the superintendent of North Public Schools about those <laughs> issues. Um, let's get into some substantive, substantive issues, and I know that the firm represents different interests, if you will, and you'll disclose that. Mm -hmm. Cannabis in New Jersey. Cannabis. Not legal. It's P personal use, recreation, not yeah. happening. Medical. Yes, but we'll see what happens. Yes. Where are we? It's totally illegal. Under federal law, it's illegal. It hasn't changed. So if an administration decides, like the Trump administration or his successors, decide to, to shut it down in all of these various states that have allowed it, uh, it'll get shut down. It's that, so what about states' rights? Yeah, they have those, but their federal law and the supremacy clause trumps states' rights. So uh, we've stayed out of that area. I, you know, a lot of my competitors are opening up, you know, cannabis practices, but it's not legal here in New Jersey, nor is it legal uh, is under federal law. Is it strategic to stay out of it for the firm? That's the decision that we've made because there's great risk advising clients on how to have a cannabis business when it's totally against federal law. The other area that there's a lot of attention on, uh, New Jersey sports betting, once legalized, um, out shown, if you will, in, in beating Vegas. It's been a tremendous success. We were pleased to be involved in that case. We represented the state legislature in the federal court, at the Third Circuit, and before the Supreme Court. And it was the tremendous perseverance of then-Governor Christie and uh, the legislature uh, to get this done. And I know Governor Murphy has embraced it, and, and it's a tremendous, tremendous success, and it's only going to continue to grow. Watch for e-gaming. E-gaming. E this is a new frontier uh, in America and around the world. And they're selling out arenas for these people watching other people play games, video games. And I, I imagine uh, the betting on those games is going to be something that takes off down the road as well. Let's put some perspective on this. You have um, a couple of young children, otherwise known as your children, uh, who are right. involved in sports. Explain to folks where the sports betting begins and ends as it relates to professional sports and sports at you know, the collegiate or high school level or any level that is not professional. Right. So under our law in New Jersey, it's illegal to bet on any New Jersey sports teams. And that will probably remain the case. New Jersey sports teams. That's right. That's right. So you can't place a wager on, say, Rutgers or Seton Hall basketball. Uh, Seton Hall's preseason number 12, by the way. Okay. Uh, basketball. <laughs> I, I know. We are both fans of Seton Hall. You, your connection to law school is very clear. Um, so th that's where the line is there. What I'm also curious about is this. Um, We've talked about the business of law. You and I have this conversation off the air a lot. How is it, quote, changing as opposed to, you talked about knowing the law is one thing, but how the heck do you manage the business of law in these, in these difficult, challenging times? Yeah, it's, it is a very difficult time to, to be a lawyer at a large firm like mine. It's extremely competitive. The pushback on rates or fees is something that we endure every single day. The demand for discounts. Uh, most of my clients tell me they're going to pay my bill 120 days 
after presentment of the bill. So these, these, are, these are very difficult times uh, to be a lawyer, and it's getting even more and more challenging. I mentioned the connection to Seton Hall Law School. What I'm curious about, and it's a big picture question, um, to what degree are law schools training lawyers for the legal profession of today and more importantly for tomorrow? Well, I know at Seton Hall we've put in a class called the Law of Lawyering, right? Very much practical skills training for lawyers. You know, a lot of the law schools are simply teaching, you know, the, the black letter law of the, the, the main core classes. We've taken that a little bit further and said, you know what, let's train these kids to, once they get out into practice to, to be more practical. There's an award that um, you and I talked about, um, Tip O'Neill. For those of you, Google Tip O'Neill, uh, member of Congress, uh, Speaker of the House during the Reagan years, represented a district up in Massachusetts. There's a Tip O'Neill Award that you'll be receiving in Ireland itself. What is the award? Why is it connected to Tip O'Neill? And why is it so important? So the, the county of Donegal is recognizing me, along with three others who I'll mention in a second, uh, to receive this Tip O'Neill Award, which was started in 2012 by this group in Donegal to, to recognize uh, the diaspora, the people that are descended from uh, people from Donegal. So my maternal grandfather is from Donegal, as, as was Tip O'Neill's grandparents. So people like Chris Matthews from, from MSNBC, MSNBC right? Governor O'Malley from Maryland, uh, along with this year's recipients, myself, uh, the, the author of Someone Who Will Watch Over Me, the CEO of Independence uh, Blue Cross of Philadelphia, as well as a, a, a Dublin-based developer, Pat Doherty, really extraordinary business people. And it's done to recognize those who are making contributions around the world and connected to the county of Donegal in some way. It's a tremendous honor. It sure is. Um, by the way, uh, Gibbons is also a supporter of public broadcasting um, and very much has been interested in the importance of public discussion of difficult issues. Before I let you go, the tone and tenor of political discourse in this state and this nation, you know who Donald Trump is. You guys have had a connection in the past. You know who Chris Christie is, who's just started an institute on civility at uh, Seton Hall University. Are we getting worse, Patrick? in terms of the way Democrats, Republicans, and those who seemingly hate each other are battling in public? I think there's no doubt, and that's why Governor Christie has started the Christie Institute to try to improve the level of discourse. Of course, that's ironic, given some of what Christie We'll have him on to talk about that of. irony as well. And then if you look at the way Senator Booker has handled his presidential campaign, he, he's, he's really raised the level of discourse, and he's trying to, to do that and continues to, and I think he sets an example for how we need to go back to uh, the type of politics practiced by Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan. It's, right. it's funny, as, as we let Patrick go, Tip O'Neill, a Democrat, a liberal Democrat, Ronald Reagan, Republican, icon, they got along. They connected on a personal level. Um, thank you for sharing that. Patrick Donegan, Chairman, Managing Director, Gibbons PC, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me back. This is State of Affairs. Stay with us. We'll be right back right after this. To see more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato programs, visit us online at stateofaffairsnj.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD, And follow us on Twitter at Steve Adubato. State of Affairs welcomes Regina Agia, who is president of Garden State Initiative. Good to see you. 
Thanks for having me, Steve. Tell everyone what Garden State Initiative is. Sure, it's a nonprofit think tank uh, focused on public policies on economic matters here in the state. Let's get to economic matters. One of the things that strikes me about what you've put out and your colleagues is that New Jersey's um, gross domestic product compared to Delaware, New York, Pennsylvania, we're behind. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, the U.S. How far? Well, we are half of New York and almost half of the U.S. So U.S. is growing at 3.1%. We were 1.8, tied because? for dead last. Because? Well, because we aren't, you know, really putting the policies in place that will encourage more investment from businesses and grow jobs and grow values here in the state. Governor Murphy is out as we actually do this program. I believe he's in India, part of a trade mission, going out there. I mean, he's out there promoting the state. Does it take more than that? Of course it does, right? We have to have uh, economic environment as well as a regulatory environment that will be attractive to businesses because, you know, one of the things we all have to accept is we're in a dogfight right now, right, for both jobs and residents against the other states, and we have to be much more attractive than we are versus our near neighbors. What makes us less attractive in, in the view of your organization? Well, certainly the tax burden, right? I mean, we are at the bottom uh, or the bottom decile of every list of the cost of running a business, the cost of living, property taxes, you name it. So the cost to operate here is just, you know, falling behind really other states. So it's not, are you saying, Regina, that's not good enough to say New Jersey, dot, 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 open for business? That slogan just doesn't work? Well, no, right, because, I mean, as I said. Without the policies. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, the other states around us, right, look at the, the income tax rate in Pennsylvania, right, 3.3%. Ours is? Ours is 8.97. Governor, governor says we should raise taxes. By the way, we, I, we will get the governor, I, I assure you. The governor says we need to raise taxes on millionaires in order to fund public schools, public employee pension crisis, other state services, you say? Right. There are a lot of things we should be investing in, but we should be growing the economy to enable that investment, not continually drawing down on the current, you know, uh, incomes that people have. And, you know, New York, right, their corporate tax rate, 6%. We just raised ours, right? We have a surcharge on businesses now, 11.5%. By, by the way, what is it in Florida? Well, I'm joking. <laughs> by the way, they don't have one. Just to clarify, they don't have one. Well, Steve, tax. I think you know, too, right? The number two state for out-migration from New Jersey, Pennsylvania. Not, not, wait a minute, Florida's number one. Number one Florida, right. Pennsylvania, right across the border? Two. That's right. I mean, you can... So it's not the weather. <laughs> exactly. It's not only the weather. Exactly. You can stay near your family and friends and have a much more attractive... Except we're not promoting that. Um, <laughs> let's do this. We talked about, you've talked about, it's called adding it all up. This is a path to saving $2 billion for what? And what does that have to do with our roads and bridges that are crumbling? <laughs> right. So we took a step back at GSI and really thought about what is the total spend in New Jersey on all government. If we add it all up, right, county spending, municipal spending, state spending, the total is $117 billion, right, all public spending. And we looked at certain subjects and said, could we find economies where we could save money but continue to provide great services in the state? Where are the economies? So our most recent report is on transportation, which is really roads and streets and bridges. And, you know, we looked at other states, again, competitively, you know, looking at other states. And in Massachusetts, they've done consolidation. They have saved them tremendous amounts of, of money. Of operations, right, of different groups that are performing plowing and maintenance on the roads. Pennsylvania did a, a P3, a private-public uh, partnership, for rapid bridge replacement. And they believe that they're going to replace 500 bridges in 10 years sooner than the DOT could get to it in Pennsylvania. And the maintenance costs will be 40% less. 
so we can learn stuff from other states, and we should employ those learnings in our state and improve. So you're saying that just having a government agency do it itself, it may not, in, in, the, in the view of the organization and your research, is not the most efficient and effective way of getting it done. Well, I, I think there are lots of different ways to both plan and execute. But you're talking about partnerships outside of government, don't Oh, you? yes, the P3. Yeah, definitely. Is there something I, slow about government you're implying? Um, well. <laughs> By the way, let, disclose, you know a little bit about government? Yes. Your previous position? I served in Governor Christie's administration, both as his chief of staff and the treasurer's chief of staff. But I was also elected locally in the township committee and board of ed. Let's do this. Um, what I'm curious about is not just New Jersey tax policy, but you mentioned regulation. Yep. One regulation that, in, in the view of your organization, gets in the way of, and by the way, a lot of these regulations, some other folks will say, contrary to Regina says, we need to protect folks from what business might otherwise do. Yes. One regulation that you say, is not not only helping the public, but is hurting New, Jer New Jersey attract business I'll, or keep. I'll give you an example that a business uh, leader gave to me. Right? He was setting up a new subsidiary, and he looked to set the subsidiary up in New Jersey, Virginia, and North Carolina. And to set up an entity in our state, uh, in the other states, I should say, Virginia and North Carolina, one was nine pages of information they wanted, and the other state was 14 pages of information they wanted. New Jersey, take a guess how many pages we right. needed. 57 pages of information Why? just to set up an entity. That's what the business leader was asking me. So oh, oh, I, want to make, I want to be clear here. You're saying that New Jersey, beyond the tax policies, beyond property taxes, corporate tax, income tax, that just setting up a business is more complicated because of the process itself? And, and devil's advocate, some might say, we need all that documentation to know what that subsidiary is doing so that we can, quote, protect the consumers, you say? I say other states don't, and they're prospering much more than we are. I think we can learn from other states. Have you had a direct conversation with Governor Murphy about his policies and how you see them? And I have not personally. I'd welcome it. So Regina Gia is the president of Garden State Initiative. By the way, folks, go on your website, which we put up a couple times during this uh, segment. What can they find? Uh, all of our research, as well as we put out a blog and news uh, that's relevant to economic matters here in the state. And, and real quick, funding for the organization comes from? Both foundations and individuals only. We don't accept any funding from businesses because we really are nonpartisan and focused on economic matters. Regina Agia, President of Garden State Initiative, has joined us. I want to thank you for being with us. By the way, check out uh, a column I write in New Jersey Monthly. We also did a feature on your organization as well. Um, Regina, thank you for joining us. This is State of Affairs. We're coming to you from the NJTV, Agnes Ferris. Studio, keep the conversation going. So join me on Twitter. Do you even know my Twitter handle? It's at Steve Adubato. I know we talked the other day. Uh, check you out next week. Thanks so much. State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation, celebrating over 30 years of broadcast excellence. Funding for this edition of State of Affairs with Steve Adubato has been provided by RWJ Barnabas Health. NJIT, PSENG, the Northward Center, the Turrell Fund, supporting right from the start NJ, MD Advantage Insurance Company of New Jersey, and by Wells Fargo, promotional support provided by New Jersey Globe, and by New Jersey Monthly. I think at NJIT, there are a lot of smart students. I came to NJIT for mechanical engineering because within state, it's one of uh, probably the top three schools for engineering. 
It sort of creates a friendly competition where you know you can learn from them. It's a great academic school. I feel I'm being challenged, but at the same time, I love the classes I'm taking. The atmosphere of being here is like a, being at an upstart company. It's that same kind of drive, that same kind of passion. I could feel my lungs fill with oxygen, and I got my life back. The sharing network means to me hope, life, and everything. The sharing network was a lifeline to me when I really needed it. We are an organ procurement organization. The core purpose of the New Jersey Sharing Network is to save and enhance lives. To honor those who gave. Pay tribute to those who received. Offer hope to those who continue to wait. And remember the lives lost while waiting. For the gift of life. This is Mary Gamba. If you want more leadership tips and tools, log on to stand-deliver.com. That's stand-deliver.com.